It's my sole function to be noisy. And very successful you are at it. I think you're a natural. <laughs> I'm going to disappear over to John, I think, isn't it? Yep, John. It is, indeed. John Show. Welcome to Football Ruin My Life, the podcast where three old geezers talk about how we fell in love with football and how that football compares with what we watch today. We talk about the heroes of our youth, Stanley Matthews, Tom Finney, Jimmy Greaves, Bobby Charlton, Dave Mackay, Peter Osgood and John White. Our guest today is a man who played with all those late lamented stars, dropped down a division to join Division 2 Liverpool under Uncle Bill Shankly, and went on to win the First Division Championship and play for England, managing the First Division in England for more than 10 years, before going abroad to become a legend in Turkey, where he won three successive titles. He is, of course, Gordon Milne, and we are Colin Schindler, author, TV producer and professor, Patrick Barclay, renowned journalist and uh, fornicator, no, sorry, very very pathetic football writer, and me, John Holmes, sometimes agent and Leicester City fan. Gordon, tell us a bit about where it all started out, and Tom Finney, a name that all of us regard with some awe. Yeah, well, really, the beginning, when you mentioned Morecambe there, my dad played there, and brought up you know, in a football family, my dad having played the game and played with Shanks in that Preston North End team in the 1930s. We lived, you know, 100 yards from the football ground. I can remember my dad, particularly when he was manager there, he used to come home for his lunches, they did in those days. And my mother used to sit at the window watching him come out of the office door at the football club and then started to set the table. but That was at Preston, Gordon, was it? That was at Preston, yes. And, you know, that's obviously where, coming through the ranks then, being an apprentice joiner, my dad wouldn't let me go full-time, playing for the A team, the B team, and making progress, where eventually I had the opportunity to meet Tom Finney. Now, at that time, as a young kid, Tom was my idol, you know, Preston born and to this day I don't think I've ever seen a better player to be able to grow up and admire him and then be able to get the opportunity on odd days to train with him that was the beginning of a journey that looking back now I didn't realize at the time that I was going to be on and it was at a time of course when there was a maximum wage I think Tom was on about 12 quid a week it dropped in the summer they got less in the summer and I suppose all of us, in a way, we've had our idols, but it just seemed to be the natural one for me. And I got to know him much closer eventually when I started to play regularly for the team. And he was still in the team at that stage, was he, Gordon? Yeah, well, when I got into the team, I think it was his final year where he played for Preston and he'd played over 40 games. So in his last season, I was fortunate enough to play with him that amount of times, and it was just unbelievable to be able to have played with somebody like that who was coming to the end of his incredible career. Mm. Did he ever give you advice, or was he more one that concentrated on his own game? You know, it's funny, Paddy, we were just talking before we started, and Mm. we were talking about Bobby Charlton and the character and the personality. And Tom was... Very unassuming, never used his fame and popularity to change from what he was. You know, part of his career, when he started when he was playing for Preston, he had a plumbing business and he mm. was repairing some of the players' kitchen sinks and stuff like that. And that was that era at that time. So he'd come through working class and his parents and himself into professional football. So the career he had... And the amount of games he played for England and the amount of goals he scored and all the awards that he won through his career, he never changed. And I think the closer you got to Tom, the more you respected him. Naturally, people respected his ability because that was incredible. But how he handled that and the sort of person he was. Did you ever talk to him about the 1954 Cup final? 
because the whole country, apart from West Brom supporters, wanted Preston to win that cup final because it seemed to go along with the Matthews final the previous year. But for some reason on the day, it, it, it never happened. It must have been a sore disappointment to the club, but particularly to Tom. And I just wondered whether he ever mentioned it. The only time that, and I can't remember when it came up, Colin, but I was talking to my dad, and my dad was trainer. When Tom was coming to the end of his career, my father was trainer at Preston North End. And, you know, that was the days where the trainers wore a brown coat and, you know, <laughs> yeah. was in the medical room and they did everything. They painted the stands in the summer and cleaned the, this and did that. But the brown coat was the status uh, thing. And I remember him talking to my dad one day about, and he always felt that he let everybody down mm. and he couldn't put his finger on it and he never got a kick. The game passed him by. You remember yourself playing the game and some games seem to do that. But, you know, he had so much in his armoury to somehow retrieve a situation or do something that might have looked like Tom Finney, but it, it never did. It just never happened that day. I let everybody down that day and... And that's how he was. He was a Preston-born lad and, you know, 30,000 had travelled to Wembley and this, that and the other, and I just, I never turned up. And I've never heard him say any more than that. The terrible thing was, of course, he never got anywhere near it again. That was the thing about Preston got there. But even though I think once they finished second in the 1950s, a decent side, but they never really threatened to win anything. So he never had a club winner's medal in anything, did he? No. And if you think a player with that ability today, as you say, Colin, not achieving anything. The legend in the Football Writers Association, I don't know if this is true, our annual dinner to honour the Footballer of the Year, apparently between 1947 and 1954, it was held on the night before the cup final. And Tom, poor chap, when he should have been allowed to rest in his London Hotel prior to the match, was kept up till, I don't know, 11, 12 o'clock at night to receive his award. He was the 1954 Footballer of the Year. And that may have been a contributory factor to his quiet performance the following day. I don't know. But anyway, suffice it to say that after that, the Footballer of the Year dinner was held on the Thursday Mm. to give players time to relax. And now they are, in fact, uh, presented with their award before the dinner starts so that they can go and get a good night's sleep before the final. I don't know whether that was a... Well, that's the first I've heard of that, Penny. But what you could add to that was, in those days, chairman, directors Mm. were powerful, even along the lines of talking to Tom Finney, for example. There was that story about when Tom had the opportunity to move to Italy. Yes, And the chairman said, you're not going anywhere. That put the end to that. So from that point of view, you could say, well, the chairman has said, look, you've won this, Tom. You must go and get the presentation. If the chairman said that, Tom being Tom would have done it. He could play outside right, outside left, centre forward with equal facility, couldn't he? I mean, did he have a favourite position? Did he ever say that? Was he too versatile for his own good, do you think? No, I remember my dad was partly responsible for putting him centre-forward at one stage. And what I do know, coming to the tail end of his career, Cliff Britton was the manager. Mm -hmm. And he didn't get on too well with Cliff for whatever reasons. And there was occasions when Cliff played him outside left and then next week he might play him outside. Not so much centre-forward, but he loved centre-forward because the, the great thing with Tom was he was good in the air. And like all top players, I think real top players, he had this physical strength. People sometimes don't take that into account. But, you know, a lot of your top boys have low centres of gravity and are physically strong. In those days, you know, Tom Finney played in an era when it took a lot for the referee to blow for a foul. So he did enjoy centre-forward, but he had this ability, like you say, you know... When he was outside right, he'd cut in on his left foot. He did a good mm. left foot. He played a lot of games at outside left for England, didn't he? Yes, because Matthews was outside right, so, yeah. But he was two-footed, wasn't he? I mean, I make the point about Bobby Charlton being two-footed in a way that you rarely see these days. He was just so good with either foot. Yeah, so if the full-back was showing Tom inside, he, he just went past you on the inside, you know. <laughs> it, it made no difference. Yeah. What did he do when he was confronted by people like... 
Roy Hartle and Tommy Banks at Bolton, <laughs> who would have well, well, there's that. I can tell you a little story about that one because this is true. And, you know, we talked today about the amount of staff that you have at football clubs today and how many people are actually working in the treatment room. But in the old days, your physio was key to information for your manager and your physio had to be somebody that you respected, hopefully had a knowledge of the game and could understand the game and then pass the right sort of information to the manager when he felt necessary because players would sit on the treatment table and moan about not being picked or playing in the wrong position or the the manager's got no idea and all this sort of stuff. But the story was, and this was to my father, who was then rubbing his legs on a Tuesday night when Tom was covered in bruises. And they'd played against Bolton. And at that time, Higgins, Hartle, Henning and Tommy Banks. Mm. So my dad's talking away and he's, he's, his legs are black and blue. And he never swore Tom. And he's saying... That fizzing Tommy Banks <laughs> on Saturday kicked me from pillar to post, from start to finish, Jimmy. You know, and my dad's looking at him. I can see it, Tom. When the game was over, do you know what he fizzing did? He came over and wanted to shake my fizzing hand. <laughs> my dad's uh, so Dundodian, and he's calm, quite well. What did you do, Tom? He said, I shook his hand. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> oh, well, they, Ian McShane tells a story. His dad, Harry McShane, was an outside left, as, as you probably remember. And when he was up against Hartle and Banks, because he was left winger, so he was up against Roy Hartle at right back. And Banks called across to him, Here, Roy, when that's finished with him, kick him over here. Yeah. <laughs> that back four were total... Assassins. Well, <laughs> I can't find the word, can I? <laughs> Without using the wrong words. Yeah. <laughs> well, how do you look after yourself? I mean, you know, if you're faced with that kind of physical intimidation, you're a skillful player, a wing half, what do you do to not disappear from the game, but to avoid having two broken legs by the end of it? You learn, don't you, from players. And well, you, I did when I was young. So just listening to Tom and Tom's behaviour and how he played, you'd learn, if you'd got any sense at all, all the right things to try and do. But in that team at that time at Preston, before me at that time was Tommy Dock. Tommy Dock was number four before mm. me, Shankly before him. And then Willie Cunningham was right back. Mm. So Willie Cunningham was a fellow member of Banksy's organisation yeah. because <laughs> Willie took no prisoners and he was left-footed playing right back. I grew up with a mixture of assassins and gentlemen football players and skillful midfield players as well so you're lucky if you can and I was be brought up in the right company if you like all successful teams they're a mixture of breeds and temperaments and characters aren't they you know a little bit of everything if you can learn it and listen to them and try and take the best from it I think I was fortunate then but that Preston team you know, Willie played behind Tom Finney and you couldn't have two contrasting personalities, really. Yeah. So then, Gordon, the next stage, of course, is that you drop down a division, which would have been unusual, a step for you as a promising player. You dropped down from proud Preston, who were in the first division, to join Liverpool, who were in Division 2. And I believe you told me, of course, that Bill Shankly, Uncle Bill, as you called him, lived across the road from you in Preston? Yeah, well, you know, in those days, you know, my dad from Dundee, Shanks from wherever Shanks came from. Yeah, sure. To come to England was like a step up. And when they joined, the club gave them houses. They had a clubhouse to live in. So they were coming from really nothing to having a little house and bringing their new wives and girlfriend. So it was a massive, massive step up. And my father lived across the road from Shanks. I can't remember this. I have photographs. When I was a kid, I used to play and hit the ball against the garage doors, the little semi-detached houses, which were right next to the football ground. Shanks used to come over, apparently, and have a kick around and do this. He couldn't resist kicking a football. And then as I learned a little bit more about it, as I grew up a little bit more, 
I remember Shanks and my dad playing together. I've got all the photographs here in my office when they played together in the successful period that Preston North End had. So I knew him, but I didn't know him, if you know what I mean. So I was in the army. I had to do my national service. And I was lucky enough in the last year of that to play in the team for Preston. I managed to get leave to play on Saturdays. Couldn't train during the week and then come back and play. And Tommy Dock was coming to the end. Tom had gone to Arsenal. He got in touch with my father and was asking, was I interested in going to Arsenal? So me being in the army and just about to come out of the army, this was like, I can't believe this. I didn't say yes, I didn't say no, but that went so far. And then Shanks came on the scene and then obviously knew my dad. He turned up one day at the house. I was still in my uniform then. And when I look back now, John bringing it up, you know, Arsenal were the first division club. Preston were in the first division. Big club. Liverpool were in the second division going nowhere. And what you do now, sometimes you look back on your career and say, did you do the right thing here? The reason Shanks is enthusiasm for it and one thing or another, my father never got involved, kept his mouth shut. And the reason was I didn't fancy going to London. Mm. Liverpool was down the road. Liverpool was Lancashire and, you know, Shankly was his enthusiastic self. As it turned out, Paddy, it turned out to be the right decision. Yeah, well, you know, players still to this day talk about, you know, why did you choose such and such a club? And they say, well, the manager outlined his vision. Did you get a sense that Shankly might be a sort of messiah figure, as he proved to be? to build something that would last? Or is would that be fanciful? Did you just say, well, he's a chap I know and trust. I'll go there. I think he was right half for Preston. Then Tommy Dot was right yeah. half for Preston. Then I took that number four shirt, which I was always proud of. Yes. But I looked at him as a senior player, maybe a captain, and he's enthusiastic about it. And it's a big club and they'll get big crowds and we're going places. We're going to sign a few more players and this, that and the other. Nobody at Arsenal had the opportunity to sell Arsenal to me because yeah. I didn't go down and talk to anybody. It was purely the doc talking yeah. with my father and they're interested and blah, blah, blah. So I think that genuinely swayed me, buddy. And plus the fact that if you wanted to live at home, you could do. You could travel or whatever. I don't think he mentioned that too much. Quite a good decision, though, when you think about it. Well, as it turned out, yeah. But Preston was quite a modern club. The ground was good. The training facilities were good. The treatment room and the dressing rooms were top class. Before we leave Preston, I'm just curious to know, were you trained to do another proper job in inverted commas? Yeah, well, when I left school, I got a job as a carpenter. My dad wouldn't let me sign full-time terms at 17 or whatever you did in those days. He wanted me to take a trade, so... That's what I did. I think everybody did pretty much, didn't they? Yeah, well, I just said, Tom Finney's a plumber. You know, you look back, it's different. But at the time, Colin, you just took it for granted. That's what you did. So it was no big deal not being allowed to sign full time. You know, this is what you do, son. And because if you finish off, you're not good enough. You need a trade behind you. So do you remember how much you got paid as an apprentice carpenter as opposed to an apprentice footballer? Yeah, it was it was about, as an apprentice, about four quid a week or something, wasn't it? I remember it used to come in a little brown envelope. Oh, yeah. I used to ride home on my bike on a Thursday, you got paid, and give the brown envelope to my mother. Unopened? Yeah, unopened. I was allowed to keep the, I forget what the part-time money was for Preston, I was allowed to keep that which was actually a bit more than I was getting as a joiner. Well, that's what I was really asking. I mean, because you were playing already established in 1961 when the maximum wage was broken. And at one point you were being canvassed to go on strike, weren't you, by Jenny Hill and the PFA? What was your feelings about that whole shenanigans going on at that time? Well, that would be Liverpool time, though, wouldn't it, Colin, would it? Yeah, 61, yeah. yeah. That was a little different. The first year I went to Liverpool, they were in the second division. They didn't get out. And then it was the second year that they got out. The thing had started to kick off at Liverpool. So I was a bit more experienced, not cocky, but we felt a little bit more powerful that we had a case here to try and do something about the maximum wage. But again, players were still led in those days. Jimmy was the master stroke behind it all. Jimmy had the personality to drive it and honestly believed in the players' interests. They had to do something. 
But all I remember about that time, it was a collective thing that the Everton players would be the same. They had good players at that time. They had a better team than we had. But on Merseyside, we were collectively trying to stick together to do something about... And how did the manager respond? Because, you know, they're going to have to pay more money, there'd be less money for him to spend on players and so on. I don't think anybody envisaged how it would turn out. I don't think for one minute. If they'd have said at the time, the maximum wage will be £100 a week now, players would have jumped for it at that time. Yes. Because what were we on at Liverpool at that time? £20 a week. Was there a lot of grumbling before the wage was lifted? Was there a lot of grumbling about how badly you were paid and how you were underpaid compared to everybody else. And was there any unanimity about that? Or was there were there splits in the dressing room? No, never that. I'll give you a little story. We used to, on a Friday, if we were playing Arsenal, for example, we used to get on the train at Lime Street Station and get the train to Euston. They used to get those, the old-fashioned compartments were sealed off a little bit. And we used to play cards. There'd be three or four card schools, not heavy going, just cards. And we're playing and we're talking about the future and what happens. And the ambition was in that card school that when you finished, you could have your house paid for. Mm. And my house, my semi-detached house that I bought at Lydia to Liverpool when I moved from Preston, cost me £2,300. And our ambition was if we could finish playing and have the house paid for, that'd be fantastic. Mm. That's how the mentality was. And I think in that era, it was easier for managers, but at the same time, it created a kind of loyalty, if things were going well, that generated a feeling within the supporters. And Shankly was clever enough to see the importance of getting them on board with the team. One of his greatest skills, I think, was being able to develop an association with the people, as he used to call them, and the club. But there was never, ever, in my time, the money situation being an issue. Gordon, when you went to Liverpool, they were the poor relations of Everton, even though both clubs were owned by the Moores family. But you said to me, not only was it step down in division, in the terms of the facilities when you first went to Liverpool, it was a slum, was the words you described me in comparison. It was. The dressing rooms were a dump. The kit that they used to put out for training was terrible. The stadium was in rack and ruin. The whole place was depressing. And I remember my debut was against Southampton on a rainy night and there was 22,000 there and we got beat. I think that weekend, I'm starting to think straight away, what have I done here? Everton were the team. Everton had the players. Everton won the league. They were, as John said, second-class citizens in more way than one. And it took time to put all that together. And, you know, Shank was instrumental in that because Shanks himself was neat and tidy as a man. He didn't like untidy dressing rooms and second-class kit and not the right training equipment and proper footballs and stuff like that. It was all pretty basic. It was. But you went quite quickly from promotion to winning the first division into the European Cup, about three seasons. When did what you're describing, the dressing rooms and the paraphernalia that you thought was so poor, did that change at the same time as quickly? Gradually, I think. As I said, the first year was a transition. In that first year, if my memory serves me right, I think Ian St John and Ronnie Yates came in. Shank signed Yates and St John, who were significant in cornerstones of what was going to happen next and Willie Stevenson and it took time and then after getting promotion then as you say it kicked off quickly and that era then where Shankly came into his own and he got motivated himself by this I know it was the Beatles came on the scene and you know the 60s all of a sudden took off but the Beatles were connected to Liverpool and Jerry and the Pacemakers and so the music started to kick off And when I first went to Liverpool, in his heyday, when it was full, there was 26,000 in the cop, can you imagine? But the cop never sang songs. They made a noise at a corner or they they tried to do this and do that. They never sang songs. But when the music kicked off and the Beatles came on the scene and still at black, the whole name of Liverpool took on a different significance and Shanks cleverly got involved with that. So the football club linked into it beautifully. You know, then as a young man, I would be, what would it be then, 25, 26? There was nowhere better to be. The two things worked together. 
and songs came on then and EIRDO, that was, mm. you know, it's hard to imagine it as it was, but it only changed in the 60s. It's interesting that you talk about Shankly. One of the first thing he did was to build a bond between the manager and the crowd. And I've got this theory about this, and I don't know whether you would agree. I think Klopp, Jurgen Klopp, has done exactly the same thing. He came in, he got the crowd on his side, which he had done earlier at Mainz and Dortmund, by the way. Mm. And if you have the crowd and the manager together, there's no way for the players to hide. Well, let me give you an example, Paddy. I can remember sitting in the dressing room on many occasions at Anfield. Even then still, there were crap in the dressing rooms. And yeah. I think he left the opposition dressing room worse because that didn't make anybody feel too welcome. <laughs> but he used to open the door and it'd be 20 to 3 and you're getting ready, you put your boots on, you're doing it. And he used to say, listen to it, listen to it, listen to that, he'd say. How can you let those people down? Oh, brilliant. Listen to it. And, you know, he used to talk third party. He wouldn't talk to you, he'd talk to Bob and say, Bob, do you think they're paying attention? <laughs> He'd do things like that. He'd use that. He didn't have to say anything. There's a piece of film of the crowd singing, She Loves You, Yeah, 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 before the players come out. I mean, the, the cop is full, and they're singing full-throated. So I would imagine, that, given what you've just said, Gordon, that that's when he's opening the door and saying, listen to that. It wasn't just crowd murmurs. This was a crowd in full voice on an empty field. Again, as I said, third part, he'd sit there and maybe Reuben Bennett, you know. Reuben, you know, you're all in the dressing room. So he's shouting, Reuben. So all the players are thinking, what's he going to say to Reuben? Ground's full. It's been full for an hour. There's not a spare seat. The ground's full. And then he wants anything else. So you're sitting there as a player like, and it's 52,000. It's yeah. full. Mm. And it's an hour to go before kickoff, yeah? And then how can you let them down? Yeah. Are you going to let these people down? You told me also a story of the first cup final, which you didn't actually play in because you were injured, but you were on the coach going to the ground and Bill was giving tickets out to fans, yeah. even on Wembley Way. Again, those were the days when we got 100 cup final tickets. Some of the lads just sold the 100 in one go. The different spiff boys were around and this and that. Because they didn't get the wages or anything like that. They were all gold dust, whatever the tickets were. But they all had different colours. So a brown one was the cheapest ticket. The purple one was the most expensive ticket. The purple ones were the best price ticket. You didn't get many purple ones, but everybody got a few purple ones. So we're going up Wembley Way with the bus. And he can't move. And he's sitting at the front of the bus and knocking on the window. Bill, with no tickets. And then driver, open the door, open the door there. And he gets in his pocket and he's got two of these purple ones and he gave them to the nearest hand that could grab them. That was him in, yes. in a way. He wished he'd have had a pocket full, you know. Yeah, he just gave the tickets away. And there was a sort of tragic end to that because this was the era before Peter Robinson came to the club. And the previous secretary... Jimmy McInnes. Jimmy McInnes. Couldn't cope with it, as you explained to me. Tell us a little bit about what happened there. Well, again, that's the era when the manager did everything. With the groundsman on the pitch, this paint in the stand, doing this, doing that. So the cup final, Shanks is involved, obviously, with the allocation of cup final tickets, where you can imagine at Liverpool where they got, what did they get in those days, 30,000 Tickets or something, Colin yeah. per club. No, it was that the actual allocation to the fans on a ground that holds 100,000 was 16,000 per club. So Shanks has got a nightmare straight away, and he's influential what he's doing. And he's doing it with Jimmy McInnes, who was the secretary. And Jimmy was Scottish. And the demands and, and what's going to go to the players and what else is going to happen with these tickets and directors' involvement and who's influencing what, I don't know how much it got to Shanks, but it definitely got to Jimmy. And sadly, I think it was just after that cup final, Jimmy committed suicide. He hung himself at the football ground. And Shanks would be the same, not getting to him maybe in the same way, but somebody coming to Shanks and saying, I've been to every game, Bill, blah, 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 and I can't get a ticket. He'd be heartbroken, Shanks. He couldn't yeah. do something about it. 
But Jimmy McKinnis had a more serious role in terms of the pressures of other people as well at the football club. And then moving on, if we can, Gordon, eventually you moved on from Liverpool, having won most of the things there. You played for England. You went for a spell to Blackpool. And then, as I understand it, you were approached when Shanks left by Bob Paisley to ask, would you take over at Liverpool? Yeah. I was always close to Bob and Bob was quiet. But he used to give words of wisdom, Bob, and I always listened closely with Bob. When I played there, I had a good relationship with him. So I was at Coventry at the time, and we got a phone call. The club got a phone call. Bob Paisley's been on the phone. We're playing tonight. Would it be all right if the lads came down for a little loosener at the training ground? Liverpool being Liverpool, they're not bothered about who looks at them, who's playing tonight or who's not. They just come down. We give them a section of the training ground, and... They did their little warm-up like we were doing the same commentary, doing our warm-up. And we'd finished, and I walked up to see Bob, and they, they were finishing off. And out of the blue, he just said, this is a job for you, son. He just said that. And I, I looked at him, and I thought, well, what are you, what are you saying, Bob? He said, this, this is a job for you. And I just left it like that, what are you talking about, and, and left it. But I had an interview with Peter Robinson and John Smith, I don't know how much later, at the airport hotel at Manchester about the possibilities of doing the job. It didn't materialise. I didn't do what maybe I should have done. I think maybe they spoke to Big Jack at that time as well. But as we all know, they made the wrong decision and finished off with Bob. (laughs) And it all went wrong at that point, yeah. Just while it's in my head, Carl, there's a photograph. There's Shanks. Bob and Joe, and they're at the training ground, and they've got this training gear on. It must have been in the early days where it looked like it's come from the cheapest shop in town, and they've got boots on that look like miners' boots, and they're stood there, and they're talking about something. And you looked at it, and I looked at it, and you think, well, Bob and Joe, in their career, won what Shanks didn't win. Bob went on to achieve... And then Joe won the European Cup, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the history and the, the bedrock of the club was created at that time. The satisfaction I get, or the pleasure I get, it was I was there at the beginning. Yes. So, you know, that's the pleasure I'll always have, and mm-hmm. being able to talk about those three guys, you know. Gordon, you then spent over 10 years managing the first division, first of all with Coventry, and you got to work again with a name that came up earlier. You got to work with another fellow who started things off, if you like, the start of for football as a journey that's taken them to immense wealth, Jimmy Hill. Tell us a bit about working with him. And first of all, you were brought in as co-manager with one of Colin's favourite characters, Joe Mercer. Yeah, well, I'd known Joe. I think everybody knew Joe, didn't they? Or you couldn't fail to like his personality. But when I was manager at Wigan, we drew Manchester City in the Cup at Main Road. Mm, I saw it. Colin Bell, you know, Franny yeah. Lee, and we gave them a bit, a bit of a fright. And it, yes, you it, did. It finished 1-0. From that, I got quite a bit of good publicity because I'm not a league coach and blah, blah, blah. And I was working with the England youth team at that time, with the under-18 team, and we'd won the tournament that summer. So those things helped in me getting the opportunity to go as team manager with Joe. Joe was the senior guy. I was a young guy coming from non-league football, and that was the combination. I've always had this kind of attitude to life that you're lucky if you meet the right people along the way. Of course. Whether that helps you individually as a person or... You just retain the knowledge from what you learn from them. So I was lucky I knew Joe, I met Joe, and I went to Coventry with Joe. But what intrigues me, because I wrote a book about the relationship between Joe Mercer and Malcolm Allison, that Allison effectively forced Joe out of Manchester City. It was more complicated than that, but that's essentially what happened at the end. So Joe arrived at Coventry in the summer of 1972, having left City under difficult situation. And because he'd been working with a very ambitious coach who was close to the players who wanted the job for himself. So now he's back with another, you know, maybe not as ambitious, but a young coach like you who is on his way up into management. And Joe's got the same situation. 
I would imagine it was because your different character from uh, Malcolm that it was a much easier relationship between you and Joe than it had been between Malcolm and Joe at the end of their time together. How did you find that relationship? Well, I think if a relationship's going to work, if any chance, the individuals have to be doing what they want to do or like to do. And I think Joel, having that experience working with Malcolm and seeing how it panned out, mm. that that senior citizen, young coach, could work. And Derek Robbins, who was the chairman at that time when I went at Coventry City, Derek had that approach that a wise old head with a young coach who's enthusiastic and ambitious can work. Joe had no threat from me whatsoever. Mm. And I had no threat from Joe, only support. And Joe's personality and character was perfect for that role. He did it so well, as you know, as being a Man City fan, that he was perfect because he could relate to the fans, he could relate to the media, he could relate to the players. Joe felt comfortable doing it, and it made it clear to me right at the beginning that he wouldn't interfere with what I wanted to do. He was there just to support me. So who you picked the team, right? Yes, yeah. You, right, because that's the key thing in the end. Yeah, it was. And Joe was fantastic doing what he did, and... Uh, Early days, we went to play a pre-season at Bristol, the first time, you know, been away, and get the players together in the hotel lounge for a little chat, just a little chat. And Joe said, I'd just like to say a few words to the lads and this, that and the other. And if it was Willie Carr, he called him Tommy Carr. Yes, yes. <laughs> Roy Barry was Billy Barry. And, and he, was, he, he was going away. And you could sense the mood the players are burst into smile, but they're frightened to death, you know, they respected Joe. But that with football players can create the right kind of mood and the right kind of atmosphere. And he continued that way throughout his career, Joe, and players loved him for it. And it worked. In the second half of that 72-73 season, you took your Coventry team back to Main Road. And the crowd, because I remember it so clearly, I assume you were sitting on the bench. Joe went into the director's box, sitting behind Alison, who had been banned from the touchline, of course, and was sitting in the front of the, of the director's box. And the crowd saw Joe, and they just couldn't stop applauding for two, three minutes. And Alison sat there glowering, because there was nothing he could do about it either. But the crowd had made their feelings known about Joe that day so clearly mm. And you ended up, Coventry ended up winning that game. And um, two weeks later, Alison walked out. Yeah, mm. it, that was the pivotal moment when Joe mm. appeared at the back of that box. Yeah. I remember it so clearly. Yeah. So moving on a bit, Gordon, now the highlight of your career, you go to Leicester. <laughs> and you inherited a young centre forward who fell over a lot. <laughs> and you turned him into, I think everybody knows we're probably talking about somebody called Gary Lineker at this stage. And turned him into an international. Yeah, I'd just like to say, John, before I go on to that, you just hinted briefly there, the Coventry days, and, and Jimmy Hill just got a brief mention. Yes. And you know when you look at the foundations of football clubs today and there's problems and here problems there, the same principle still applies in my eyes. If it's not right at the top, yes. then there's no chance that it's going to have success further down the lines. You know, I worked for maybe five, six years with Jimmy at Coventry. And his knowledge and support was instrumental in me surviving that length of time. You know, he understood the industry, he understood players, he understood management, and he understood the public and the fans. What we did at Coventry, we survived, we sold our best young players, we produced players, and we survived. That was his basic principle to me was, if we do that, and we keep the club afloat, and they stay in the first division, we're doing our job. I do have to mention that, because that was of crucial in, in my career anyway. So when you came into the club at Leicester, Jock Wallace had left. They'd lost out in a semi-final, and they were a bit down, it's fair to say. Jock had walked out on the club. But you then took over with a fellow they'd signed from Overchurch called Alan Smith, and Gary Lineker playing, and one or two other useful young players, Kevin McDonald, Ian Wilson, and actually turned them into a really very attractive outfit for a time. Yeah, going to Leicester was obviously the two clubs being rivals, 
And then following Jock, who was popular, successful, it was difficult enough that. I think it would have been more difficult had Jock got the sack. But he didn't get the sack. He walked out. Leaving the club, the club had to have a new manager anyway. So it happened to be me. It was similar in lots of ways. Decent young players on the staff. Some older generation that needed moving on a little bit. But if you remember then, John, we didn't start very well at all. That was a rough period for me personally. And it took time again to sift out the wheat from the chaff and and try and get a collective unit together. And Gary Lineker and Alan Smith were two key members of that. Alan Smith had just come in from non-league football. He was a student at university. He wasn't sure whether professional football was going to be the right thing for him. He was reluctant to give up his studies at the beginning. Gary had had a season in the team, had played a lot of games wide right on the right wing. He didn't enjoy that, but it took time to work with those lads and eventually get a combination that suited both of them and the rest of the team. You know, individuals, good individuals, need good players around them to make them work. And at the same time, good individuals can make average players better. It took time to get a combination that suited Gary, who wanted the ball early, and getting Gary to play with other players. Good strikers, I suppose, are a little bit selfish in their mentality. But his mentality at that time, when he was younger, wasn't equipped to handle what other players were doing. He was self-centred about what he was doing. And his touch and his first touch and how he received the ball was typical of a young player learning his trade, really, John. In the end, of course, Gary moved on, you moved on from Leicester, and you then have this extraordinary period. You went out to Turkey, which wasn't what people did in those days. How did that come about? Well, if you think about it, at 10 years at Coventry, at five at Leicester, that's 15 years and a couple of years at Wigan, and put all that together, it was quite a bit of mileage. And I had in my head, I thought, I might fancy working abroad. I might, I wasn't sure, but maybe time for change of some kind. I had a year as director of football, or whatever that means, at Leicester to finish off, to see that period over, as I did at at Coventry, and I didn't want to do that. And I remember, we finished in the May, and England were training at Lillyshaw, And Bobby was in charge of England, so I'm at home one day. I'm here where I'm sitting now. And the phone rings, it's Bobby. What are you doing? Oh, I don't know, I'm having a break. You don't need a break. Come over and see us, we're at Lillyshaw, come on over. Oh, right, thanks. So the next day I drive over to Lillyshaw, I get there in the morning, they're working, the session's finished, and then a bit of lunch with Bobby and chat. What are you thinking and what are you doing and what all this? So, well, I might fancy abroad, but I'm not sure yet. So he said, Don is helping a club out in Turkey. This is Don Howe. He's coming back tomorrow. They've offered him a job, but he he won't take it. He doesn't want it. Come tomorrow and have a word with Don. So I'd go back next day, same situation, lovely weather. So after lunch, we're sitting out on those beautiful pitches at Lily Shoulder on footballs, Bobby, Don and myself. And Don's saying, the fanatics, the big crowds, the chairman's a good guy. If I wasn't working with England, I'd probably take the job, but I'm not going to do. What do you think? I didn't really know what to think. It didn't make any sense. But I said, well, maybe I should talk to them. Of course you should talk to them. I go home that night. The phone rings. There's a gentleman from Istanbul on the phone. The next morning, I'm on a plane to Istanbul. The following evening, I sign a contract. (laughs) My rest or a little break from football lasted a month or six weeks, if that. That was, in a way, your most successful managerial period because you won the league three times on the trot and virtually never lost a game, Gordon. I think it was the third year, John. That was winning it without losing a game. I hate to think, really, how Arsene Wenger felt when he did it with Arsenal. That was an incredible achievement to do that. That was the icing on the cake. But I was just telling one of the kids this morning, uh, local kids here, that... um, you know, there's stories with Alex. I've got a call with Alex at Manchester United and he was having a bad time at the beginning, you know, with yeah. the one thing and another in the press and how things turn out. And I'd been there about three months. It was a home game 
and I've gone on to the Inninu Stadium at that time and in those days, like two hours before, it was nearly full. Yeah. And there's a big placard right down one side. Yeah. And this is an hour and a half before kickoff. And it says, please go to your home, Gordon. He did say, please. <laughs> <laughs> People talk about, oh, you were successful and this happened and that. I lived in a hotel for eight months because I had no motivation to try and find somewhere to live because I didn't feel I was going to survive. I used to go to the training ground, train, work, go back to the hotel, go upstairs, have a shower, go to bed, and that was my routine. The early years were difficult there, yeah. As it turned out, with that really successful period after that, but people tend to remember those things and forget maybe how it was right at the beginning. How did you... Would you work with mainly Turkish players? Yeah, the great thing then, when I say great thing, Patrick, they were allowed three foreign players. Yes. It was two when we first started. Yes. And they put it to three. I was chuffed to bits with that. Yeah. Because you were working with Turkish lads. I didn't understand them. They didn't understand me. (laughs) But they all understood one another. Yeah. You know, as we know now, integrating foreign players, no matter their ability has problems. And I always adopted the attitude that I was the foreigner, right? Yes. Not them. I was the foreigner. It helped me that. One of the early ones was, of course, Les Ferdinand. You know, Les was my first one I brought in. Les, an instant hit, and he had a great season. He was a young kid at that time, and it was the beginning of the start for him. But I didn't rush bringing foreign players in, no. So the majority were Turkish. Turkish players, Turkish staff, Turkish everything. At least you never did a Graham Sunes then and planted your flag in the opposition's... No, I had enough enemies at that time (laughs) without creating any more. They'd have crossed out the please maybe then. Yeah, Yeah, there was only Graham could do that. But (laughs) Graham became a lifetime hero of Galatasaray, so for doing that. So So then, Gordon, after that, Period, and I know that you're still regarded as a sort of messiah figure in Turkey, but you then got involved with some dodgy agent who helped you go to Japan. (laughs) Now, that was a bit different, wasn't it? Ah, you did nothing. It was Gary that got me that job. (laughs) (laughs) You contributed to my downfall. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing when I said earlier, John, about your time at Leicester and Coventry, I think... Alex Ferguson was unique, Wenger was unique in a different way, but I remember Jack Charlton saying to me a long time ago, five or six years at the club is enough, move on. Jack, what are you talking about? Five or six, players will get fed up here. He used to say that. And it was time to leave Besiktas. The timing was wrong because it was halfway through the season. Japanese season was starting earlier so I had to leave halfway through that was no good that was bad but if it had done that season then it was time to go so this offer came in a little bit at the wrong time but it was the right thing it was the right time to do it again there was a structure there which was good the facilities were good it was a different kind of challenge I knew Gary of course unfortunately Gary was never fit at that time you know he never recovered from his toe problem and I didn't get close enough to authority there, and it didn't work. But I never regret the move, John, no, no. It was the right thing to do. Arsene Wenger followed me, did a year, maybe two years, won the league, and Arsene went from Grampus to Arsenal. So if it was good enough for Arsene, it was good enough for me, but it didn't didn't work out. And to sort of finish off the journey, because we've done an incredible journey, it's been great listening to the stories. I've heard Fantastic. one or two of them before, but to hear your story of the birth of Liverpool and Coventry and Jimmy Hill's been great. You then went and worked with another legend of the game, a legend over here and actually abroad as well, Bobby Robson. You worked with him for a period up at Newcastle. Yeah, again, similar start to it, John, because I was back then and I did a year with the League Managers Association. Jim Smith had done that job for a year, didn't like it, and then I had a year doing that and I didn't like it, it wasn't for me. And then again, Bobby became manager at Newcastle. It was a similar scenario, what are you doing? And he took Charlie Woods, he'd worked with Charlie at Ipswich all his life, Charlie Woods, chief scout, rang me up, he said, I've got Charlie, I'd like you here. 
again, it was as simple as that. I went up, had a chat with him and worked with him for four years, was it, John? Yeah, to nearer the end. He did a great job there. He did a fantastic job. His first game, they won 8 nothing, I think, didn't they? They beat Sheffield United or somebody. Sheffield Wednesday. And, you know, Bobby, dad took him to the games, the Geordie. He was perfect for the role. It didn't finish well, which always saddened me and still does to this day, really. Yes. But so, Gordon, that's a lifetime in the game. And I know you're still living just outside Hinckley. You're between Coventry and Leicester, which is where you worked in England. And you go to games occasionally. You and I have gone together. The modern game, there's a lot of difference, isn't there? How do you see that? against the game you played? You know, if you put your footballer's hat on, John, you say, well, as a player, I wish I could have played on pitches like they play on today. I wish I had the medical backup that they have today because I think they can extend your career. You can play longer if you're a dedicated pro and you, you want to look after yourself. The rest of it, I think... You know, you've got to be careful of, like we just jokingly on this pod we're doing, not being old farts and, you know, saying life's not like it used to be. It's moved on. The pace of the game's changed. Players get more protection now. We talked about my idol, Tom Finney, being black and blue from start to finish. That was par for the course. They don't have to put up with that now. But how they play the game, it's exposed to every little detail now, isn't it? It's analysed every second of it, every move, every this, every that. I think that makes it more difficult for everybody, really. Anyway, I think we can truly say if if football ruined anyone's life, it certainly didn't ruin yours. <laughs> it's yeah. been great to hear the stories that you've told us. Actually, you've kept Paddy Barkley very, very quiet. Yes, it's what's known as a respectful silence. <laughs> anyway, we've all been listening to Gordon Milne on Football Ruined My Life. I hope you've enjoyed it today. I hope you'll continue to enjoy our podcast. We come out every week at the moment. And if you have any questions, any comments, any abuse you'd like to hurl at us, our email address is footballruinmylife at gmail.com. So it's as usual, well, not as usual, actually, because I'm normally one of the crowd. Thank you to Colin, who's taken over as a pundit today. Paddy, as always, and especially to Gordon. Thank you all for listening to Football Ruin My Life. Very good. Sadly, I've muted Paddy. That was by mistake. <laughs> we should all be able to do that, but we can't. I, I can, but I can't unmute him now. <laughs> Gordon, that was wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gordon. Yes, very interesting. Next lunch is on me, Gordon. Right, I'll jot that down. <laughs> We've got it recorded. <laughs>